there. Welcome to episode two of Baseball by Design. I am so, so thrilled to be speaking with baseball design royalty, not just baseball design royalty, but graphic design royalty, sports design royalty, Todd Radom, who has created logos for everything from independent minor leagues to minor league baseball teams to major league baseball teams to the Super Bowl, to the NBA All-Star Game, to the Big Three Basketball League. Todd, tell me what I'm forgetting here. There's so much. You've written at least two books. Uh, what else? What am I missing? Just keep going, Paul. You got, I, just... I don't know. You got a lot, but it's been many years, <laughs> and uh, we will touch on maybe some surprising projects that maybe you didn't know about along the way, but uh, you got some highlights there. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you uh, having me on. So excited. Always good to hear from you, to see you. And uh, I love this. So I am ready. Well, we, you know, you and I have spoken many times over the years. You've always been so generous with your time, which is amazing to me. And whenever I hear you uh, interviewed on Buster Olney's podcast, which happens uh, weekly during the baseball season, uh, it's always great to me because it's you're you're the same guy whether you're speaking to Buster Olney's millions of followers or you know just the two of us talking about the Wichita wind surge. You know you're I, I always enjoy talking to you. We have a lot to talk about, uh, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna dive right in. You designed one of my all-time favorite minor league baseball logos, and I I have to say it pains me a little bit to say that because it's a Mets affiliate. And I'm a Phillies fan, but there's just no escaping how great this logo is. And I'm sure you get this question all the time. The Brooklyn Cyclones, have, you know, they brought baseball back to Brooklyn, which was a, a huge weight on your shoulders, I'm, I'm sure, as a, as a designer to, to bear the responsibility of crafting the, the brand that goes with the team that brought baseball back to Brooklyn. So I'm sure this is the question you get all the time about this logo. Can you tell me about your experience riding the Cyclone? on Coney Island. <laughs> oh my God, Paul. It was like, first of all, the last time I rode the cyclone in Coney Island, it was uh, right around Labor Day. And what you and your listeners, you might know this, but a lot of people probably don't. The cyclone is a wooden roller coaster. It dates back to, if I'm not mistaken, 1926. Um, and it's a bit of a rough ride. So the last time I did this, it was right around Labor Day which is to say that they oil the thing and they lubricate it. And maybe it's a little bit of a smoother ride around Memorial Day. But by Labor Day, it is teeth shattering. So <laughs> I am with a couple of friends. We went to a Cyclones game. Maybe we had a couple of beers. Just saying. It's possible. And maybe one of my friends is the guy who is, you know, the devil on one shoulder throughout most of my <laughs> adult life, tapping me saying, Oh, come on, let's have one more. So we get out of the Cyclones game. It is right before Labor Day. And he's like, come on, guys, let's ride. We got to ride the Cyclone. Come on, who's in for it? I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. And he's like, come on, I'm paying. We get on the thing. We get up. I wear glasses. You can see me right now. Not sure if people know that. We get on this thing. I'm totally unprepared. I've had a couple of beers. This thing was uh, so incredibly rough because... It hadn't been lubricated, perhaps, in many weeks. And my glasses, I just instinctively held. Anyway, it was, it was very memorable. It was a little scary. And uh, I haven't done it since. Yeah, well, I had, I had a similar experience on it. And I'm pretty sure that, 
that part of the cyclone experience is the sort of low grade concussion that you walk away with after the fact. <laughs> so, so, so that experience obviously, you know, must have informed the process of creating the Brooklyn Cyclones logo, which is this beautiful, elegant illustration of a roller coaster with a with a baseball flying across the, the sky. Can you tell me about you know, tell me about that that process of taking this rickety old roller coaster, literally from the 20s. And you said you felt like it hadn't been lubricated in weeks. I'm thinking since that 1926 launch date, maybe it had not been lubricated. Like it's it's a it, like you say, it's a. You rough might be ride. right. You <laughs> might be right. No, it's funny. Well, so first thing I'm going to say about the Cyclones project is I get asked very frequently by people, not by you, but by a lot of people, mm -hmm. what is the favorite thing that you have ever worked on in your career? Mm -hmm. And I've been doing this for a long, long time. And I always respond. It's like asking what your favorite child is. You can't say that. And furthermore, you know, some things age better than others. Some things you're just tired of. But one of the things I always come back with is the Brooklyn Cyclones identity. And I say that for several reasons. Number one, um, it's aged well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I appreciate your kind words. I like it. Um, I look at it and I am, I am pleased with it still, which is quite something after two decades. <clears throat> also, it's had staying power. It has been around for two decades. Um, also, I am a New York guy, born in Manhattan, educated in Manhattan. You know, I love a history, as you know, and some of your listeners probably know. So to have the opportunity to work on the first professional sports team to inhabit Brooklyn since the Brooklyn Dodgers famously left in 1958 was quite an honor. And there was a lot to sink my teeth into, you know, again, it's, it's 20 years ago. So anyway, this was one of these jobs that was like a flat fastball up the middle, waiting for me to just hit it out <laughs> of the park. Uh, some of the criteria were, you know, historic, but not um, necessarily buried in history. Um, it contains a few things, a little, you know, some, some Mets blue, because as you said, a Mets affiliate owned by the Mets since day one. So that certainly made sense. Uh, a Columbia blue, uh, which, you know, um, was not used all that much at the time that, uh, this team launched in 2001. But, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Wilpons, former Mets owners, uh, Columbia people, Columbia oh. University. So I'm thinking that that could have been part of it. And I still have the original sketches. Everything was digital at that point, but there were a range of things that I worked on, which looked like luggage labels from the thirties and travel posters from, you know, the old days. And that really touched on Coney Island. But at the end of the day, Paul, um, it was, first of all, it's a great team name, right? Mm -hmm. Makes Absolutely. sense, has local uh, relevance, um, just sounds cool. Um, the word Cyclones took center stage and that bit of architecture in the background that conveys what the Cyclone is was just enough and intertwining the Brooklyn Dodgers-esque B with a new C kind of like brings it to life. It really does. And, and you mentioned, you know, if you've not seen photos or if you've not been to a game in Brooklyn, you're right there by the boardwalk. You, you can see the rides over the center field wall. 
I went to one game uh, there a couple summers ago, uh, a rain shortened affair. We got in our five innings and we got our ice cream helmets. So, you know, we, we got what we needed to get priorities uh, in order. Absolutely. Very much so. Uh, but it was, you know, absolutely just a, a, a classic baseball experience. That, uh, my, just- my memory of, you know, when I think about going to a Cyclones game, Paul, I think about taking the subway out there and it is a long, long subway ride from Midtown Manhattan and you are below ground for the first part of it. And then suddenly you emerge above ground, you know, on the other side in Brooklyn, way out. And you start to see tops of buildings and neighborhoods changed and signs of businesses in different languages. And then you exit the station at the last stop at Stillwell Avenue, Coney Island in Brooklyn. And it's summer, you get off that train and you smell suntan lotion and you smell the sea and you see people in bathing suits and there's a lifeguard chair in the subway station and it hits you. Uh, and it is such a unique place, beautiful stadium. It's aged well. Um, and just one of my favorite baseball experiences anywhere. So I would say then, uh, you know, possibly culturally speaking, the most different place in America that you could think from Brooklyn, New York might be Wichita, Kansas. (laughs) I, I, I don't know if that's a fair thing to say or not, but you know, obviously, you know, same country, very different places. You also created the brand for the Wichita Wind Surge, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the the Cyclones logo holding up well, and it very much has. But it's certainly different from the sort of trends that we're seeing in minor league baseball right now. So, twenty some years after creating the Brooklyn Cyclones logo, uh, another project you've obviously worked on so much else in between, but spanning the gap of of twenty years is you have the Brooklyn Cyclones to now the Wichita wind surge. Was there a difference in the process in recent years creating the Wichita wind surge logo from when you started uh, with the Cyclones logo? Yes, in many ways. First and foremost, the thing that unifies both of these disparate places and situations, to your point, uh, is the fact that in the case of the of the Cyclones, I, uh, my mandate to some extent was to create uh, a major league look for a minor league team in a major league city. Okay. Uh, the wind surge was somewhat similar. Mm-hmm. Wichita, uh, is the 50th largest city, I believe in the United States of America, surprising thing to people who have never mm-hmm. been there. And of course our conversation will at some point turn to the late Lou Schweckheimer, uh, who really wanted something with staying power that was decidedly untrendy. Um, and, um, you know, could had the potential in a world of fleeting impressions to hang around and look good for a while. Um, now, in terms of what the differences are in, in the deliverables and so forth, well, you know, 2001, we're barely in a dial-up world, essentially. Uh, it was all about merch. The amount of merchandise was nowhere near what we have now. And the needs of the identity were quite minimal compared to what the needs of a more contemporary visual identity for any sports team would be, mm-hmm. uh, knowing that it needs to activate. And even, you know, in terms of the stadium, two, you know, beautiful stadiums in very different ways, but um, Riverfront Stadium in Wichita, which I took a construction tour of um, when we announced the name in September of, um, or excuse me, November of uh, 2019, 
um, just state of the art, almost major league with a gigantic, you know, high resolution scoreboard, all that kind of stuff. I visited, uh, it was part of our baseball Palooza tour, which is why I'm sitting here drinking from a Wichita wind surge cup right now. Uh, it was part of our baseball Palooza tour, uh, this summer and, uh, it is a beautiful stadium and we stayed, uh, in a hotel right across the river from it. And, uh, I have to tell you, we went into that, that team store, uh, quite a bit larger team store than the Brooklyn Cyclones have. <laughs> oh, and, man. And uh, I was lucky to get out, get out of the store with my wallet still intact because there's just so much, you know, so much great gear in there. And I wanted, you know, I, I wanted all of it. So, you know, this, this logo, you know, I mean, I think it's, again, it's, it, it bucks the current trends, just like the Cyclones, you know, longevity sort of bucks current trends in, in minor league baseball. The wind surge is decidedly, you know, not cartoonish. It's not you know, we'll talk a lot about, you know, on this podcast, we'll talk a lot about the trend of the sort of wacky, fun, you know, kid-friendly cartoonish logos, you know, that's largely been influenced by, you know, Brandios. And now you're seeing a certain number of Brandios imitators. And then even this franchise used to be the New Orleans Baby Cakes, right? Which was probably the poster child for for that era. So the the decision by the team to do something different from that obviously informed their decision to contact you for this project, because I feel like that is not in your oeuvre. <laughs> yes. I'm sure that's by design, the, the, the wacky minor league baseball logo, but still, and I realize this is a long question. I, I think uh, the guys from smartless, the podcast smartless are always making fun of each other for their long questions. And I think that's going to be a hang up of mine on this podcast is the, the, <laughs> the, the long, the long question. But so nevertheless, they are minor league baseball teams and you have worked on minor league baseball teams. You've worked on league logos for minor league baseball. And as I mentioned, you've worked on NBA all-star logos, Super Bowl logos, the big three uh, basketball league. So can you talk about the difference in the process between a Brooklyn Cyclones or a Wichita wind surge and Super Bowl 38? Yeah, I mean. Let me back it way up in response to your very long question. <laughs> to the beginning of my very long to question. To the very <laughs> genesis of your very long question. And point out the fact that my first paying job in professional sports was for a minor league team. I did the identity for the Knoxville Smokies back awesome. in 1991. Something like this is still um, hand-drawn. It was before the advent of computerization. Sure. In the design profession, you know, <laughs> uh, commonly. So that goes. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is my love for the miners and my experience in doing this goes way back. Um, now, the, you know, the difference between all of these things that you referenced and minor league baseball, minor league baseball relies upon merchandise sales and ticket sales in a way that um, none of these other entities do. Right. It. Minor league baseball goes, I think it's fair to say, lives, breathes, exists, thrives at a micro local level. And uh, revenues are derived from the sale of stuff traditionally. Mm -hmm. You don't have, you know, lucrative broadcasting contracts, anything of that nature. So creating with merch in mind is, um, I don't know if it's necessarily job one. Maybe it is job one. Um, it's certainly very important. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and thinking in terms of versatility 
um, coming up with a primary logo that can be squeezed and distilled into different parts, abbreviated. What does this look like? You know, in it, it, it's it's you know kind of uh, re-engineering a primary logo uh, as part of an entire visual identity platform is probably as important in minor league baseball as it is with regard to you know any other situation in sports. I think that's a that's a great way to understand that process, right? Like what's the end use going to be? And yeah, absolutely. So I appreciate that, that response very much in part because it prompts me, it reminds me that you on Twitter were skeptical of the, uh, the ability of major league baseball to craft a logo for the all-star game on very short notice after moving it out of Georgia. And part of that that you elucidated uh, rather clearly was all of the different applications for the logo and the testing that needs to happen. And, uh, you know, I mean, they, they came up with something and they came up with something on fairly short order out of necessity. But how long a process should it typically be coming up with a logo for a high end event like a Super Bowl or an all star game? I mean, I've done all-star game logos uh, and, you know, it's typically a two-year process, give or take, because you want to, uh, if you are part of the design team, you want to be feet on the ground, you want to go to the venue, you want to go to the city, you want to walk around, you want to see what inspires, uh, you know, the people who live there and the local market. All-star games, uh, big, many big events, not all are different kind of animals than these evergreen team branding projects in the sense that they come and go. And you can, I think at least, rely upon trends a little bit more because they represent lightning in a bottle, kind of a moment in time. Now, I was at the All-Star Game this past uh, July in Denver. Mm -hmm. I have been to 25 consecutive Major League Baseball All-Star Games. And if you, if I did not know the unusual circumstances by which this game arrived in Denver, I probably would not have known that uh, this thing was created with the haste that it was. It was activated very well. Now, part of that has to do with the fact that because of our uh, current pandemic times, the number of um, events associated with the game other than the on-field stuff was diminished, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the amount of parties, like all this kind of stuff. But I thought it looked great. Uh, and, you know, just stunning activation, all things considered. I thought so, too. I actually, I thought what they came up with was was pretty good. I, so one of the things that I think has been really interesting um, has been this, uh, what feels like a, a, not a resurgence, but a surgence, I guess, if that's a word, uh, of interest in by the public in graphic design, in logos, in uniforms all that sort of thing and it's you know it's exemplified by the fact that that you a graphic designer and since that's my background i feel like a, a certain connection here you know buster only has you on his podcast once a week right for all of his many millions of of listeners what do you attribute this this interest in the sort of visual aspect of the game uh to these days well i always say it Baseball in particular is a game that lends itself to introspection. And that has something to do with the fact that postseason games are eight hours long. I'm exaggerating <laughs> here, but uh, there's a lot of time to focus on the visuals, Paul. Always sure. has been. And uh, I think that's part of it. I think it's 
partially due to the fact that we are, as human beings, kind of bombarded by uh, branding and brand impressions uh, now in a way that we never have been. Um, and I think people are kind of, you know, the fact that we spend so much time with our faces buried in our mobile devices um, means that that we're more visual people than we used to be 10, 12 years ago in a strange way. Also just, you know, there are subsets of, you know, people who are into fashion, into popular culture, into hat culture, right? I mean, you can speak to this directly. Um, I certainly know a lot about people who are into fitted hat culture, new era drips that are matched with shoes, especially among young people who are not necessarily sports fans. So it's not so much about the logos, but, you know, it could be about colorways mm. and, uh, you know, side patches on headwear and stuff like this. So I think it's a convergence of a lot of things. In the case of being on Buster Olney's podcast, I will <laughs> say that uh, very briefly, um, I know Buster for almost 30 years and it has nothing to do with sports. You want me to tell you the story real quick? I do. Absolutely. I, I was, I'm, you're, I'm hanging on your every word here. Okay. So I have a core group of uh, friends of mine from middle school, from high school. We are a band of brothers. So we have been together continually since these years. And that's a long time ago because I am not necessarily young anymore. <laughs> and we have been there for each other's weddings, and, you know, funerals, births of children, blah, 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 blah. Back in those days, there was no internet. And we would write letters to one another at our various colleges. My dear friend Gabriel goes off to Vanderbilt University in the fall of 1982, writes me this letter. I'm living at the YMCA on 34th Street, 9th Avenue in New York City. And he says, and by the way, you would love my roommate. Uh, he loves baseball. You love baseball. You guys should meet. And that guy was Buster Olney. <laughs> and that was a long time ago. <laughs> That's a great story. What an amazing connection, though. It's, yeah. uh, I love it. Well, now every time I hear you on, on, on that podcast, I'm going to remember that story from, from you living in the Y <laughs> in New oh, York City. That could be a whole other <laughs> podcast. Uh, That's too much. <laughs> um, all right. I have, some, I have some other questions for you. And uh, you, you noticed early on when we were talking before we started recording here that I was holding up your books. Uh, yes, you, you are the author of Winning Ugly, uh, which is a fantastic, very visual book about baseball uniforms. Highly recommend it to everybody. And then uh, you were also the co-author with Chris Creamer, who was the first guest on the uh, Baseball by Design of Fabric of the Game, which is a hockey book. But also, you know, for fans of sports branding of all kind, definitely uh, an absolute great read. So I have both of those books in my possession here. I am holding up. A, a, a spread here that I'm probably blocking the microphone too. That's good podcasting. You, you know, your own <laughs> book, but uh, you indicated that May 19, 1979 was a very important date in the history uh, of major league baseball uniforms. And you have a photo of the Phillies all burgundy Jersey with a zipper on it. So can you comment on, because it's my Phillies and I feel like this is the, the biggest moment they have in your book here. Can you comment on that all burgundy uniform? Well, one of the reasons why the Phillies don't get a lot of uh, ink in that book, Paul, is because they have always looked pretty handsome. They haven't had many deviations from, uh, you know, they, they've been rather consistent for much of their history. I mean, 
certainly their known history to, to us. Um, and even their most modern look, the look of the 70s, essentially 70s and 80s, associated with some great players and great teams, was, you know, forward thinking, but quite handsome, not garish in any way. However, 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 the evening that you uh, specifically reference, the Phillies decided to take the field in all burgundy uniforms with white stripes going down the sides, white lettering, white decorations. This was a night game on the artificial turf at the late, great, always ugly, winning ugly veteran stadium. And to say that the Phillies looked less than great from a visual perspective uh, would be uh, an understatement. Uh, And it was a weird brand deviation for them. This is a franchise that, again, especially up until even until very recently, has not you know, not gone hog wild in terms of alternate looks or breaking away from their usual look. So uh, these uniforms were such an abject failure that they essentially sold them off after (laughs) one game. They were roundly criticized. They didn't look good. They looked really dark on the field. They didn't fit well. You name it. Everything went wrong. It's I mean, this is what makes this book so much fun, right? Like, is just reading about these, you know, teams, major league teams, which largely do a pretty good job of of putting uniforms together when they when they whiff, you know, they whiff in a big way. Well, and and Paul, one of the great things, one of the I don't know if it's great, but one of the noteworthy things about that specific evening was that it was photo night. <laughs> in which fans were allowed to, you know, come down close to the field or on the field and take a close-up photo of their favorite players. So there's a lot of visual documentation, which even though this was only 1979 in those days, it's, you know, again, a pre-internet world sure. by many years. Uh, the the amount of documentation for that specific game is outsized in many ways. <laughs> but, you know, I always say winning ugly is my, and I'm using air quotes here, my loving homage to some of the most questionable uniforms in major league history. And when the Phillies, you know, got into the box and swung hard, they corkscrewed themselves, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, go big or go home. And that's what happened. They went home with it. All right. I have a, I have another major league baseball branding question for you here, which is, and this is, I think this is going to become sort of an an agenda item for me here. This is going to be something that I just, I have to start harping on until I get an answer. The Orioles O apostrophe S logo. The apostrophe is upside down and backwards. Yeah. Do is there any explanation in all of your years of working with Major League Baseball teams? And and I know the logos you designed were for the Nationals and the Angels, so you may not have uh, an inside track on this. But uh, do we have any explanation for that upside down backwards apostrophe and why they're not fixing it? I have the inside track on many, many things <laughs> having to do with Major League Baseball, whether I worked on it or not. Uh-huh. And this this thing just has no explanation. Uh, I don't, I, I candidly don't know who developed it. Uh, I suspect it might've been developed by the club uh, as opposed to major league baseball properties in New York city. And, you know, it just became, it went that way and was somebody might've said, do you realize that? Well, we like the way it looks. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm spitballing on that, but no, I don't know that there is a, an actual story on it, but here we are talking about it, here but the Oakland A's did get it right. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, you know, I mean, you can get into the sort of grammatical question of whether that apostrophe is necessary, but, you know, 
That, yeah, that's a whole that, other thing. That's yeah, a whole other conversation. Right, exactly. And sometimes, you know, from a visual perspective, you can uh, take some liberties and, you know, like possessives and all yeah. this kind of thing. But but that is, you know, unquestionably wrong in so many ways uh, and <laughs> remains so after all these years, which is bizarre. You're right. But I, I, let me interject for one second here and say that, you know, the typographic guy in me, at mm-hmm. least it is not an inch mark, which would be mm-hmm. a straight vertical line, um, right. which is you know, sends shutters up my spine. Absolutely. And, and in design, you always check that box for typographer's quotes, right? That's like, right. Make sure you know you get it. The, yeah, absolutely. All right. There's one other uh, project I want to talk to you about. Uh, like I said, there's so many things that you've worked on. I mean, I would, you know, we're going to have to have another conversation at another time. Uh, Part about, two. Uh, absolutely. There's, you know, you may just have to be a sort of standing guest here, but I do want to talk about your um, hometown collection uh, series that you you did with minor league baseball because it's fascinating to me and uh, for those who are not familiar with it it's a sort of combination of logos you know defunct logos for long ago minor league teams that you recreated in part from you know historical photos and and you know g- gathering whatever information you could from newspaper articles and photographs and team records and then in addition to that, logos that were brand new, but were crafted in the style of a place or a time uh, to reflect what a team's logo might have looked like because there's no record of it. That project is is fascinating to me. You can find it by, by searching for the hometown collection on minor league baseball's website. But can you tell me about, you know, sort of, to me, the, the difference between recreating a de- defunct logo and crafting one from thin air that looks like it was recreated from a long ago time. Sure. So hometown collection, which you described pretty well, the roots of that for me, you know, in terms of what this project was and how to approach all that stuff uh, goes back to the very early nineties and the, you know, explosion of licensing at that time, particularly in professional sports. Uh, Major League Baseball brought me in in 1991 or 1992 to start to populate their um, Cooperstown collection, okay? And what do I mean by populate? Um, Researching and rendering logos of the past and codifying what represents an official logo, what is not an official logo. Some things that we consider logos only appeared on Topps baseball cards in the case of Major League Baseball Cooperstown Connection. That's not an official logo. An official logo is something that at that time would have been on a scorecard or a piece of stationery or a business card, that kind of thing that really was, you know, served to represent the team. So I started working uh, on Cooperstown Collection back in those early years, right? Um, And at that time, literally hand drawing these things in pen and ink, photostatting. I mean, there's a whole nother conversation. And uh, they were applied to merchandise. And all these years later, I still work with MLB on Cooperstown Collection, but now it is a password protected website that contains something like 3000 logos, uh, many of which I drew um, and thought about, um, you know, the official logos. What is this supposed to look like, right? Lettering changes from year to year on a uniform because of the fact that it's cut by a human being out of felt right? And there are some idiosyncrasies and quirks. There are no style guides or standardizations. So 
long, you had a long question before. I'm going to give you a long answer now. <laughs> it's fair. Uh, in the late 90s, I started to do the same thing for the NBA when they called me in to work on their Hardwood Classics collection. And uh, I did that for several years. And again, you know, um, digging into you know, the, the official 76ers logo, Knicks logo, blah, 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 blah. In the, I'm tempted to say somewhere around 2006 or seven, uh, my friends at uh, minor league baseball offices in St. Petersburg um, asked me to take this on for minor league baseball. Now, minor league baseball, as you know, and as many of your listeners know, the history of minor league baseball is strewn with franchises that came and went, and there are little, very little documentation, um, a scrap of paper here and there, perhaps. Not a lot to go by for the official stuff. So to create merchandise for some of these teams that never had logos or that we couldn't find anything for, it made sense to create what I call theme art, something done in the style of the time, hopefully with some authentic piece of something attached to it that, that could work. Uh, now, I'm remembering going down to St. Petersburg, Florida to their offices back then and they had several boxes of uh, correspondence, um, contracts, things with letterheads. And letterheads are awesome yeah. because you can really match colors. You can look at details. You can, you know, it stamps a, an official seal of approval, if you will, onto uh, what it is. And um, over the course of, my goodness, you know, 12, 13 years, there were hundreds of pieces of art attached to this hometown collection, all of them very cool. Some of them absolute fanciful fabrications, many of them with some, you know, franchises like the San Francisco Seals or Montreal Royals, things that we had stuff for lockdown. So great, great. Love, love the project. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, it's just so much fun. And I see it all the time, right? Like I, I, I stumble across it all the time, all these, these old great logos or brand new old logos, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, so I, I know I sprung that question on you too. That wasn't on the original list, but it just popped into my head. We can That's, improvise. Yeah. We can absolutely riff. Well, this is why, you know, uh, you'll, you'll be hearing from me in a month or two saying, Hey, come back on. Cause there's a thousand things that I forgot to talk about. So <laughs> easy enough. You know where I am. <laughs> well, I hope Todd that we get to do this over uh, an ice cream helmet at some point at uh, we talked about possibly a Wilmington blue rocks game, you know, any minor league baseball game, or, you know, maybe your 26th consecutive all-star game. Maybe I'll find a way to sneak in the back door and join you for a, for an ice cream helmet there, but would, um... would love nothing more. <laughs> Bring it on wedding Phillies. You know, I'm looking at you, Paul, you've got a Phillies cap on. We could do the, the iron pigs, a uh, fun place to go see a game. You know, it doesn't have to be Phillies themed necessarily. We could do the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Red Barons throwback game. You wow. know, we'll figure something out. So, and I, just based on this conversation alone, you know, I'm thinking the, the subject matter of conversation, we'd be talking about typographers quotes. We'd be saying things like <laughs> letterheads are awesome. Yes. Uh, and we'd be talking about, uh, you know, apostrophes. So it's uh, when graphic designers get together, these are the things that we could, maybe we could discuss what our favorite ligature is. Oh, I mean, that would be going down the wormhole of the nerdiest typographical, I mean, you know, justified columns, perhaps H and J's. Absolutely. I mean, we could just, you know, yeah, you, yeah. that could be episode 58, Paul. 
I, I noticed that in, in your books, you went uh, flush left, ragged right in Winning Ugly, and then you went fully justified in uh, Fabric of the Game. So we could we could talk about, you know, why that. But uh... A lot more words. You got to fit them in. <laughs> Tighter layout makes for, uh, makes for a more structured look. This makes me so happy. I love these conversations. <laughs> Todd, thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time. As always, I really love this conversation. Look forward to many more. And uh, thanks for your great work in the world of sports-based graphic design. Paul, thank you so much. It is an honor and a pleasure to know you, my friend. I wish you good luck with this podcast. And you know where to get me, like I said, anytime. Episode 58, Justified Type. We're going to do it. You understand that I'm about to go put that on my spreadsheet now. Episode 58, <laughs> Justified Type. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you, Todd. Uh, look forward to talking to you again very soon. All right. Thank you so much. Todd Radom can be found online at toddradom.com and on Twitter at Todd Radom. <laughs>